0: This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi.
1: Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we take people's questions. You can email them directly here into the studio. The email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net, Or if you're more comfortable, you can call us directly. And again, the local number is 843-525-1859. Uh, if you do call, we always give preference to live callers, and uh, we'll put you on the air. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to write it down and to receive it that way. Well, Rick, uh, a lot of questions have already come in this morning, so we will tackle them by God's grace one by one. Let's go ahead and get started.
0: All right, we've got a listener from Savannah that writes, What do I do if my husband of six years hasn't been the best husband and I haven't been the best wife to him either, but I'm done, even though he's changing and trying to fight for our marriage and he's fighting hard for our family, but I just don't want to anymore. We just don't trust one another anymore. I made the decision to get divorced, and I'm not changing my mind, no matter how much he changes. We are godly and saved. We both come from divorced families. He doesn't believe in divorce. I decided not to go back to our pastor for counseling. We have four beautiful children. What should I do?
1: Well, I appreciate the question. I'm glad you asked it. It sounds to me like uh, you are at a point of turmoil you say you're done, you're not going back, but if that were true, you wouldn't be writing me. So I think you know in your heart of hearts that you need to fix this, and God can fix it. Listen, I don't know what the trust factors uh, are driving you today. I just don't know because you're not in front of me. Maybe someone had been faith, unfaithful maritally. I, I, I don't know what the circumstances are, but whatever they are. God is bigger than your circumstances, and the fact that your husband wants to restore the marriage and he's working hard, but let's, too, make a distinction between saved and godly. You can be saved, but the decision you at least express that you want to make, that you want to divorce your wife, that you, uh, your husband, that you do not want to forgive him, that's not a godly decision. That's an ungodly decision. That's what the world does. And uh, again, I don't know, (laughs) excuse me, the circumstances behind what's driving your decision. But trust can be restored. Uh, I think it was the uh, president of Columbia University about 40 years ago said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again while expecting to get different results. So whatever you've been doing as a Christian couple obviously has not worked. And so change needs to be entered into the equation. And where does that change begin? Well, it starts, of course, with a healthy local assembly that you're a part of. If you don't have a place to go, I notice this caller is from Savannah. Uh, Your church may not be meeting. You can certainly live stream our services. But what I would highly suggest is that you live stream the service called Basic Discipleship. We've already done about eight sessions Uh, There are 20 handouts. Some handouts take three or four weeks each. The first handout took four weeks. The second handout, if we finish it this Wednesday night, will take three weeks. Uh, You should go through that. Why? Because um, if a person is a growing believer, there are nine traits that are developed in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those nine traits will grow progressively with every year as you walk in the Spirit. And you think about it. If those nine traits are true in you and your husband, that's going to make for a fantastic marriage and a great home in which to raise these kids. Look, God says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. So if you want to know what God's opinion is, he says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Malachi 2.16. And one of the reasons he hates it is because it's the breaking of a covenant. It's tearing apart two living people. And he also underscores the damage that it does to your children. Look, it would be far more courageous for you to say, I don't know how we're going to do this, but with God's grace, because God's grace is sufficient and I can do all things through him who strengthens me, then I'm going to fight for this marriage. Look, the fact that you wrote me told me you're not done. So I'm glad you wrote me, but get help. Please get help. Don't jettison this marriage. Anyone can do that. It will take courage, and it will take time to rebuild the trust factor. But there needs to be some change that's entered into the equation, and you don't want to jettison this relationship. If you don't know where to start, feel free to call us here at Community Bible Church and ask for one of the pastors, and we'll give you some online encouragement and coaching and counseling from Scripture, too. All right, let's go to the next caller. I think we have a live one that's waiting.
0: Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Go ahead, we're listening. Well, I think we Hello? lost. Yes, go ahead. Turn your radio down Hi, because. this Allison. Yeah, Allison, go ahead.
2: And I have a. My question is, um, I was uh, suggested by a friend from church to purchase a book called Jesus Calling. My question is: Is this a good book to to buy and to have the daily devotionals?
1: What city are you calling from, Allison? Okay, well, first of all, no, it's a terrible book. Uh, Absolutely horrendous. And it's uh, built on a false premise that um, both she and Beth Moore and others espouse that, you know, God can speak to you directly apart from Scripture. And so she'll teach you how to journal in her book, And in her book, she'll talk about, you know, God speaking to you in the first person so that you can write down things God said, and then you can give a quotation like you'd be quoting a prophet or a writer of the New Testament. That's heresy. This lady is way off. So if someone gave you the book, throw it away. Uh, Don't give it to someone else. And if you want to understand more fully why, number one, it's a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. But if you go to my website, searchthescriptures.org, if you go to the website, it's all one word. Jesus said, search the scriptures, not com, but org. I have an article on this book. And all I did when I um, evaluated this book is I evaluated the um, introduction. I mean, it was just like so unbelievable, just the introduction. I didn't even get... I didn't even want to get into the chapters. She said everything you needed to know in the introduction. Interestingly, when the book has now been reprinted, they've removed the introduction. And so, but I have all the actual quotations. And if you get an older copy, you will see what the introduction says. And it's heretical. So, no, don't don't get this book, Jesus Calling. It's a denial that God's word is sufficient. Listen, God's word is truth. What you need to be studying is the Bible. You don't need to be looking for Beth Moore text messages from God. God said to me, Beth, Beth go outside and do, you know, this is just crazy stuff. This is what the cults are built in, not biblical theology. But we, because we live in a day where the Bible is not really taught expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. uh, We're being uh, thrown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So it's a terrible book. If you just read my article at searchthescriptures.org, you will understand fully why the principles that she is teaching are anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christ, and you shouldn't explore it. Good question. Let's go to the next.
0: Okay, and that uh, information can be found on the Search the Scriptures website under Resources and then Articles of Interest. So, okay, good. All right. Uh, Daisha from Pineland, South Carolina, would like to know the following. Is Jimmy Swaggart's message of the cross biblically biblical? Recently, I had a family member share this message with me, but I'm not sure what to think. Wait, let me rephrase this. I understand completely that my belief in Jesus Christ alone and by his grace I'm saved. That isn't my issue, and I am 100% sure when I die I'll go to heaven. Nonetheless, I want a clearer understanding of how to educate my loved one properly. I have checked the website. In my opinion, the things I read from certain links posted in the uh, Jimmy Swaggart Ministries website seem to be biblical doctrine. However, my red flags are still up because it seems like a slippery slope of false doctrine. Could you elaborate on Jimmy Swaggart's message of the cross?
1: Well, let me first say the fact that this is Jimmy Swaggart, who is unqualified to be a pastor, to be in ministry, says it all. Now, I may have some more years on you. I don't know how old you are, Dacia, but I walked through those years of Jim Bakerism and Jimmy Swaggartism and they are horrendous years for the body of Christ because people assume that this is what evangelical Christians stood for. So, you know, Jim Baker is visiting, um, you know, having a sexual relationship with a woman all the time. You know, he's on television every day. And Jimmy Swaggart's visiting prostitutes. He's visiting prostitutes. And then, of course, when he comes to confess, he said, well, it wasn't me. The devil made me do it. He he erased his responsibility. But, you know, he was an emotional kind of preacher, could make folks cry, and naive people who lacked discernment were drawn into that. So now Jimmy Swaggart, who's unqualified to be a pastor, I'm not saying that God couldn't have forgiven him and restored him. I'm not sure he knows Christ as his Savior. You know, again, one of the marks of an apostate is that they will enter into the church, the book of Jude deals with this, unannounced and unsuspected. And, and that's what you would think, would you not? Um, Jesus said they come to you in you know, the garb of a of a sheep, but inwardly they're nothing more than wolves. And that's what Satan does. He doesn't come and say, hey, I'm the devil here. I've come in to destroy your church. No, he comes as an angel of light. And if he comes as an angel of light, so don't his servants. For certain persons, I'm reading Jude verse 4. There's only one chapter, so we'd usually say not Jude 1, 4, but just Jude 4 if you're new to the Bible For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master in Lord Jesus Christ. So licentiousness, that sexual immorality, is one of the common traits of a false prophet. So God knows his heart. God alone ultimately knows his heart, but did he ever take responsibility for his sin? No, he blamed it on a demon, and so he goes to Oral Roberts to get the demon cast out. Listen, Oral Roberts was a total wacko, too. He's the guy who sat up in that tower until he raised. I forgot a million dollars or whatever it was. He wasn't going to come down and wasn't going to eat. And some poor, unsuspecting, ignorant Christian gave him his million dollars. Look, he was a total heretic. A total false teacher. So that's the guy who cast out the demon. Well, more recently, he claims to have been given a new revelation from God. He he tells us in his book that the church today has fallen away from the true gospel, and he has been appointed by God to restore it. Okay, well, it is true that I suppose, um, you know, the church has drifted away from the gospel, and we've let entertainment and all kinds of nonsense enter into the Sunday morning worship service, but a new revelation from God. And then he goes on in his book, and he claims that the Apostle Paul's understanding of basic Christian doctrine regarding the cross was limited. Okay, Jimmy, thank you that you're smarter than the great Apostle Paul. Thank you that you've had revelation that Paul never had. This guy is a nut, and you should throw his book away. You should warn his uh, family, uh, your family members um, of the heresy that's behind this book. Look, he, he he's shouldn't be trusted. And the fact that he's still playing off of people to, um, you know, he's a prosperity preacher. Uh, that tells you everything right there. Just to keep his, you know, lifestyle going where he built the church for millions and millions of dollars, uh, throw his book away. It's utter trash.
0: All right, very good, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Luke writes, not the writer Luke, but Luke H writes, 1 Corinthians seven thirteen and 14 is confusing me as a passage. It seems to indicate to me that unsaved spouses are made holy and are saved because of their spouse's faith. I know this can't be correct since the Bible is clear that every person must make their own decision. I find it interesting that the term used here is sanctification, not justification. Maybe this is the key I'm missing. It doesn't make sense to me how the Bible could seem to indicate that spouses and even children are brought into the family of faith because of someone else.
1: Well, it's a good question. Now, remember when you come to seven one, it's a turning point in the uh, letter (laughs) to the Corinthians, And he's uh, ticking off uh, questions that they had asked him. He said, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so they wrote him about marriage. And so just to give you the flavor of where he is going here, he says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That's in contrast to verse 12, which is the paragraph beginning the section that you're asking about. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, he says, the instruction I'm giving is not from me, but from the Lord. On the other hand, he's saying, it's not from the Lord, but from me. That's not contradictory. That's not to say that the advice that he's going to give is less. He is simply saying, on this particular first issue, Jesus spoke on it. So I'm telling you what he said. And so he said to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So where did Jesus teach that? It's found in his teaching on marriage and divorce, that it is a death-do-us-part kind of relationship. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever. So this is not an issue that Jesus directly addressed. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to address it on his behalf. Why? Because he's an apostle. And he is given direct revelation, unlike Jimmy Swagger. There is no new revelation that's being given. So whenever someone says, I had a revelation from God, and there's some wacko out there right now, who, you know, it's gone viral with millions of views who said he had the revelation about the whole COVID thing and he's predicting, you know, Washington, D.C. to burn in December and the country to be out of control. Well, that may happen, but it has nothing to do with the revelation that he received, not to mention the revelation that he says has already happened. He records after the fact, about six weeks after it happens. So, again, you should always be cautious when someone says they have a revelation the revelation was limited to god's prophets and there are no living prophets today and the revelation today is limited to what we call the canon the word canon is from a latin word that means a measuring rod and the measuring rod that we have today by which to evaluate truth is the bible so to the rest i say not the lord that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him he must not divorce her and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? Because he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Now, understand you say, well, maybe I'm confusing the word sanctified and justified. Well, in a broad sense, justification, of course, speaks to being saved from the penalty of sin, sanctification being saved from the power of sin, that process whereby what God has declared us to be in our position the moment we're saved, justification, he's imputed to our account the righteousness of Christ, that sanctification is a process by which he shapes us into that righteousness, spiritual growth, and glorification is when he completes it. Now, those are the broad usages of the term, but understand there's also precise usages, Uh, that refer to all tenses of salvation. And so, for instance, the word sanctified can be used to describe what happens the moment you're saved, when it's used in a past tense, for instance. And so he speaks here about someone who is sanctified. And so let me just, again, read the verse. He said, a woman uh, who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her must not send her away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now, does it mean that he is saved by just being married to a Christian? And the answer is clearly no. It simply means how the word sanctified is being used. And the word sanctified can be used of imputed righteousness. It can be used of ongoing righteousness. It can be used of future glorification when body, soul, and spirit are sanctified completely, as Paul speaks of to the letter to the Thessalonians, or it can simply be used of something that is set apart. And so it simply means here that this person is set apart for a special working in their lives, the unbelieving husband by the Spirit of God, by virtue of the fact that he is close to someone who is a believer. That's the whole point of it. Uh, that's what Peter's argument is in 1 Peter chapter 3, that if you have a husband That's disobedient to the word. And of course, in the context, he's speaking of an unbeliever. Now you could apply this principle to a believing husband who's disobedient, but here he's speaking of in the same way, you wives, in the same way as what? In the same way that Christ was willing to suffer unjustly, uh, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. How? Without a word. How? By the behavior of their wives. That's what Paul's speaking of here how, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So he encourages them not to let their adornment simply be on the outside, but to build an inside adornment, the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And this is how you really get your husband's attention spiritually. Now, there is an allowance for a wife to leave if she does leave, she is to remain single or be reconciled. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught. One man, one woman until death severs it. And again, if there is a possibility for reconciliation, and there is, unless someone remarries, then that's what you should pray for. It may never happen, but it doesn't give you freedom to remarry. So the point is, is that the unbelieving husband is not saved by the fact that she lives with a believer any more than the children are that he goes on to elucidate on. But they are set apart for a special purpose for the influence of a person who is a believer who might in turn win them to Jesus Christ. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Mary from Hardyville just called in and dictated a question in the Gospels, why many times when Jesus healed, he told those he healed, tell no one.
1: it's a good question. And context is everything. And so he's a lot unlike some of the evangelists of our day who, one, don't really heal, and then they say, go tell everybody. Uh, Jesus does legitimately heal. And then sometimes he says, don't tell anybody. And the reason is, is because of the stage that they were at in the ministry of Christ. And when, um, when Jesus came and began to Perform miracles. People began to say, is, is this the Son of David? A messianic title. Uh, is he the prophet? By the prophet, meaning Moses in Deuteronomy 18 spoke of one that would come that would be like him, but would be the Messiah himself. And there were certain signs and wonders that would accompany the ministry of the Messiah. And so, again, the Jewish people had a distorted view of what should actually happen when Messiah came. And many just looked at the second view. God gives really two views of Messiah in the Bible. On the one hand, he gives the view that uh, Messiah will rule and reign over all of the enemies of Israel and that righteousness will dwell on the earth. That's one view of Messiah. The other view of Messiah that is given concerns the fact that he will die as our substitute, Psalm 22, uh, Saint, uh, Isaiah 53, that he will die substitutionary for us on a cross. Well, if you're living under the oppression of Rome, then you just want the latter view. And so for people to go and spread, hey, Messiah is here, he's doing a miracle, knowing especially what their motivation is uh, and their motivation specifically is for Messiah to rule and reign and conquer Rome, he's going to have basically a movement that he doesn't want at this point, because that's not why he's coming the first time. Even even the disciples remember in uh, Matthew 17, he's transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, and Peter said, Lord, is it, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, and this is the second of three times that God the Father speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And his disciples, remember it's just Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, Tell the vision to no one. And his disciples asked him, Well, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And again, you know, the second coming of Elijah is a biblical revelation. God says he will return. When? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so in their minds, they're thinking Elijah comes, then the reign of Messiah comes. So what's going on here? And Jesus knows they just don't have the full picture. But after he is dead and ascended to the Father, they will see it clearly. And these guys obviously did what he said. They didn't even share it with the rest of the disciples. And so, uh, again, uh, the reason is because people wanted the second view of Messiah that happens when Christ comes again. And that will happen when he will literally rule upon the earth. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for... Another aspect of the Messiah's ministry that will happen when Jesus comes back. Good question. We could spend all morning on that, but we have a caller, so let's give them priority, as we always promise. Indeed, we do have a live
0: caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Well, they seem to have hung up. Uh, maybe this is them now. Let's uh, try this one. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line.
2: Oh, I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. Go ahead. I've
2: been calling, and um, I didn't know if this was a recording or live. But I do have a question, and my granddaughter, who also listens with me, have a question also. So I'm going to let her ask her question first.
1: Okay, that'd be great. Go ahead, granddaughter.
2: me <laughs> where's your question? Well, while she's looking for her question, let me ask you my question. Okay, go ahead. My question is from um, Luke uh, chapter 13. And verse 12, and it says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Can you explain that scripture to me?
1: Sure. So um, the Lord is, is speaking to the fact that there will be animosity sometimes within the members of someone's own home. Um, when someone becomes a Christian, Sometimes they're a lone ranger, so to speak, in the home, and because of that, there's opposition, and those people who are the closest and who's closer than family members, and all of a sudden, someone's converted, and they're like a constant bright light in the midst of that home. And that, is, can, that can be either a great blessing, as we just spoke of, from 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3, where you have another unbeliever, or it can be a time where there's, you know, real division and real animosity. And so Jesus made it clear that he didn't always come to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Um, but he also made it clear that, um, well, he, he said if someone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So Jesus made it clear that our love for him must supersede our love for all others, that he must be the number one relationship in our life. And sometimes when that happens, there will be animosity in the home and uh, a brother will go against his sister. A sister will go against a brother, a son against his mother. And they'll betray one another. And there's coming a time, especially during the time of the Great Tribulation, where there will be people who had never heard the gospel uh, in, in power and in clarity who will become Christians um, during the time of the Great Tribulation. And during that time, uh, they'll betray each other uh, to the Antichrist. And people will reveal, hey, he, he did not take the mark of the beast um, as, as Christians, um, he's a Christian and he won't follow the antichrist and, and there'll be great, 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 great heartache and betrayal and everything else. Now, let me just say parenthetically that sometimes you are in a home or in a relationship where you have a, a believer who's being opposed by a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, and they, they just ostracize you. Look, I I worked uh, for a dozen years in campus ministry, seven and a half years on the campuses of UNC and Duke, and then another five years traveling and speaking uh, to campuses across the nation doing conferences. And these kids would come up to me and some of them would say, literally, I'm on my own. My parents disowned me. Uh, I left the Catholic Church and became an evangelical. I was a Jew, and now I confess Jesus as Lord. didn't happen often, but it happens sometimes. And that's the animosity the gospel brings. Our Muslims converted, and they're disowned. And there was an inner hatred. But with that said, don't give up, because our responsibility is to pray, to seek God, to ask him for his intervention— and many times when we love someone who hates us seemingly unconditionally, who wants to even disown us, uh, God uses that unconditional love to draw that person to himself. So anyway, it's a, it's a good question. Now, I think your granddaughter has a um, question that you want to ask. Go ahead, granddaughter, if you have your question. Good morning, sir. And I have this
2: question for you. How did Luke know about the conversation between the angel Gabriel and Zachariah?
1: Okay, what do you want to know about it?
2: Her question, I think she was. We, I was reading the book of Luke to her on yesterday, and it said um, there was a conversation between the angel um, Zacharias when he was when he told um, him that uh, his wife was going to have a baby, and Luke wrote about it in. Luke chapter 1, right. She wanted to know, was Luke
1: present, or how did he know that this
2: conversation was? Ah,
1: great question. No, Luke was not present at the time. This was a very private encounter, and now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, so this was the day that uh, Zacharias needed to go into the temple because there was a priestly order and your day would come up. And while he's performing it according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So out of that group that is on this rotation, he's selected out of that group and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and gripped with fear. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Zacharias for your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth will bear you a son. He wanted a son and they were getting past that age where they were going to be able to have one. And God gives them a promise and his name will be John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor or strong drink, you could render it. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And in turn, many of the sons of Israel will turn back to the Lord, their God. So he's given this promise. And of course, it picks it up in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And, of course, he is in unbelief. He doesn't, unlike Mary, take God directly at his word, and so his lips are silenced for seven months. He can't speak, and he's got a lot of time to think. Look, when you're not talking, you're listening, you're thinking. And, of course, uh, on the day the baby's born, uh, he writes down the name that God had told him, John, and he can immediately speak and and so forth and then of course um, um you know John is born, and um you read in Luke one about Elizabeth and her encounter with Mary and the prayer of praise we call it the Magnificant from Magnificat from the Latin term uh Song of praise, and so on and well, how did Luke know all this? Well, because he was a disciple. He was not one of the original apostles, but nonetheless, he is commissioned to write Scripture. Every book in the New Testament is either written by an apostle or someone commissioned by an apostle. And, of course, he writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the Book of Acts. And so, actually, Luke, and his Gentile name is Luke. We don't know what his Jewish name is. But he wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. We often assume Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Paul wrote the most books. But Luke wrote more volume-wise between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles than all of Paul's books put together. How did he know? Well, God gave a promise in the upper room that he would bring to their mind the things that they needed to write. Some of it came by direct exploration. And you know that from the opening verses, in as much as, has, uh, uh, as many have undertaken to complete an account of the things uh, accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So there's one source right there. Uh, he, he had regular ongoing encounters with eyewitnesses. And of course, he's Paul's, the apostle's personal physician, Um, and so what was handed down were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. It seemed fitting for me as well. Why? Because God had led him to write this, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out in consecutive order. And that's exactly what he does. So look, there is none of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now Mark was not an apostle, but Matthew and John were. Mark was you know, John Mark, who gave us the Gospel of Mark, and he, uh, tradition says, was discipled by Peter. He's the man who flees, leaving his robe behind, uh, it appears, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night Christ is arrested. But uh, just just remember that, you know, Peter and, um, you know, Betholomew and any of these other guys, they weren't here at this event, yet they know all about it. You know, remember, they walked with Jesus for three plus years. And there were people who were here on these days who experienced it. And some of these people they met, they probably met some of the shepherds themselves as the years transpired. And uh, in God and his providence had it all written down in everything that needed to be brought to remembrance as Jesus gave that promise and the upper room discourse was brought to their mind and they recorded it. They recorded it word perfect without a single mistake Jesus taught that the inspiration that they would write with, uh, that all Scripture is written with, is down to the smallest mark and the smallest uh, letter of the uh, alphabet. Paul affirms the same truth right down to uh, the difference between a singular word, like the word seeds, plural, versus a singular word seed. Uh, So you see the inspiration even going to the very tenses of the word, Jesus gives an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb, not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just on the tense that is used, he uh, go ahead. He dismisses the false uh, argument that the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, um, he dismisses it just on the tense of a word, and he appeals to the scripture that they did believe, which was the first five books of the Torah, So um, that's how we have the Bible. But what this granddaughter might want to do, I don't know how old she is, but I have a course called Bibliology. Now, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, It's 500 pages of notes. But you will learn how we got the Bible, how it was put together, why some books are included in our Bible, why some books that were written, especially between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years of silence, why they are not in the Bible, why the Jews never recognized those writings as inspirational, uh, or I shouldn't say inspirational, as as revelation, as written revelation from God. Um, And there's a reason for that, how we got the canon of Scripture. In fact, that's just one section out of the whole course, how we got the canon of Scripture. So she wouldn't necessarily have to listen to the whole course, But she could listen to the section of the course that deals with how we got the canon of Scripture and what are the marks of inspiration and why do we include some books and exclude others and so on. So these are important questions that she certainly wants to get answered ever before she leaves your home. And I have a short little booklet, too, that's available on Amazon. I don't make any money on it, but you can order it there or through Search the Scriptures or we'll give it to people who come to a meet the pastor meeting, um, and it's uh, how to prove the Bible is true. And I go through five marks for why we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Great question. We could spend hours on that. Let's go to the next one. But let me encourage this young lady, this granddaughter, thank God that you are asking questions. And If your grandma doesn't know the answer, there are answers to be found, I promise you. And what Satan always does is he dismisses the truthfulness of the word. Did God really say? And the reason he wants to do that is because if he can get you to doubt the authority of scripture, then he can suck you into his evil and his false morality of the day. And that's what people do all the time. They say, well, I'm living with so-and-so. We may not be married, but God understands. No, he doesn't understand. He calls it adultery. Or, you know, we can have a relationship with someone that we're not married to before we get married. No, that's called fornication. And Satan, the prince of the power of the air, it always begins with dismissing the accuracy and the truthfulness of God's word. So these are like critical questions in these last days in which we find ourselves.
0: All right, our next question has been emailed to us from William in Stevens City, Virginia. It's a two-part question. First, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks about two men in the field and two women grinding at the mill. In each case, one will be taken and the other left. I've heard you speak that this is a reference to unbelievers' removal for judgment and not the rapture of the believer. Can you help me understand what the correct understanding is? Also, if you have time, would you explain to us if both servants... In matthew twenty four and through forty five or twenty four forty five through fifty one are believing servants and would you explain to um I'm sorry if both are believing servants, one sensible with kingdom rewards received and the other evil with kingdom rewards lost
1: all right these are fantastic questions, and we need to be ready we need to be prepared and so Um, this whole pericope starts really in verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. And when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, what things, what he has been describing with the birth pangs through uh, the abomination of desolation that happens dead center Uh, And when that happens through the increased tribulation that follows, when you see those things happening, you know that he's right at the door. So he's speaking to people who are alive during the tribulation period, Jewish people. Remember, the tribulation period, it's called a time of great tribulation. It's referred to in the prophet Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the functions of the tribulation period is to bring the Jewish people to faith. God has gathered the Jewish people and is gathering the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And some people think that's no big deal. It's a huge deal. It's one of the marks that God said he would accomplish at the end of time. And there are Christian people who say, well, the church is the new Israel. That's just false teaching. That's gross error. The church is not the new Israel. God has is not done with national Israel When he speaks of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, right after he speaks of it, and it's so timely, he says, as long as you see the sun in the skies and sun in the sky and the, the moon and the stars, that's how long I'm committed to the people of Israel. And what a fitting place to put that comment in, because when he came to his own, his own received him not. And it appears that they did not embrace the new covenant. Most Jews, unfortunately, did not. But a day is coming during the time of the tribulation when they will. And so who's going to be reading passages like the Olivet Discourse? Jewish people. They're going to be pouring over this. Um, And then he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And then he goes on. He reminds us, for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah Whereas in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage until the time that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand the flood until it came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the son of man be. Then here's the verse that you highlight in your question. There will be two men at the, in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. In the parallel text, where Luke also gives the Olivet Discourse, he also adds that the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. So there are some things that have to happen for the second coming to take place, nothing for the rapture. The rapture happens first. The rapture isn't in view in Matthew 24 and 25. The second coming is. The rapture happens before the great tribulation period. And, of course, for the second coming... The Jewish people have to be in the land. I mean, how can an antichrist go into a rebuilt temple if the Jews aren't even in the land? And they're not a nation. It's an impossibility. But God said at the end of time, he would gather the Jewish people. We are seeing that in our day. Uh, 240,000-plus people, one Jewish website uh, noted in the last two weeks, have made application just from the state of New York where there's a huge number of Jewish people for a full-time residency in Israel. They're leaving in droves. Why? Because they don't feel safe. The persecution is increasing. God is gathering them. He's he's fulfilling prophecy. This is what would happen. So we've gone from 20,000 people to seven of the 12.5 million people. Seven million Jews are already back in the land, and it's growing week by week by week. The planes from Tel Aviv to the United States are coming empty, but they're going back full, packed, with Jewish people who are making permanent residence. Uh, So these are unbelievable days. Add to that the days of apostasy in the church, where false prophets are forever entering the way under the guise of so-called born-again Christians, but many are not born again. Their teaching is erroneous, like we've already mentioned with Jimmy Swaggart, uh, this morning through the first question that came in. Add to that the days of Noah, days of lawlessness and violence. Add to that the days of Lot that Luke highlights, which are days of homosexuality. And so what will happen? The Son of Man is going to come. One will be taken. Where are they taken? They're taken away in judgment. And who are left? Those who are left are left here to rule and reign with Messiah for a thousand years upon the earth. And that becomes. Even clearer when he goes on and he describes the parable beginning in uh, verse 31 of chapter 25. Then, of course, your second question concerns the parable of the two servants. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of the household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, this is what an unbeliever would do. So your question revolves around, are we talking about a difference in rewards? No, we're talking about a difference in destiny. And that's clear from the whole paragraph and the whole flow of thought of what he's been describing with the, uh, like the people in Noah's day, there were believers, eight of them, most were unbelievers so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Like the parable of the ten virgins, like the parable of the marriage feasts, like the parable of how people treated Israel. He's throughout this whole section separating believers from unbelievers. So the guy who says he's not coming for a long time, so that evil slave says in his heart, because his heart has not been regenerated, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. Why? Because he's not looking for him. And in an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him to the place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, repeatedly, like in chapter 13, verse 42, of the place of eternal judgment. And so like the wicked people of Noah's day, this guy was unaware of the sudden coming judgment, didn't listen to what Jesus said, Were those who are alert and they see these things happening, they they recognize this is what Jesus said would happen that would lead up to his second coming. Again, not the rapture, but the second coming. So how Lindsay introduced that verse, one will be taken, one will be left, is a reference to the rapture. He was just wrong on that. He went to Dallas Seminary, as I did. We Some of my Um, Bible profs on hermeneutics how to interpret the Bible that was one of the many examples of how not to interpret the scripture and how it ignored the context of the whole all of that discourse
0: all right very good we have about five minutes left and um, Gilbert writes my wife and I are enjoying the Wednesday night live streaming Bible studies last night we were discussing the study and the gray areas of life which you spoke of last week the topic of having tattoos came up in our discussion we read in Leviticus 19:28, you shall not make cuttings in your flesh nor print any marks upon you. We want to be able to share biblical truths with our grandchildren. Is having a tattoo a negative command of Scripture, or is it a gray area of life? And what would you say to your grandchildren if the topic comes up in conversation? Where would you direct them in the Scriptures?
1: Well, let me give the short answer, Rick. I think someone else asked this, and you sent them a link where on the Bible line, I gave a very detailed explanation, probably 10 minutes long. Uh, But let me just just say, in Leviticus 19.28, I've turned there. God said, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Let me just say that the early Christian historians and early church fathers, tattooing was anathema. Uh, They viewed it as something that a Christian should not do. It's only in more recent years that even pastors who get tattoos have supposedly been enlightened. You know, we used to say, because it was generally true, that not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everyone who is in prison has a tattoo. Uh, why? Because there was a certain deviant behavior that was typically, not always, there were sailors who'd get tattoos and so forth. Today, not anymore. That saying really doesn't hold. you got doctors, lawyers, educators, even pastors who who brand themselves with tattoos, and I see it because when I do baptisms all the time, I see tattoos on fingers and feet and on necks and all over. So this is not a test of fellowship. It's not a test of conversion. But I will say that for many today, they're associated with sensuality. They're associated with sexual immorality. In fact, often if a man or a woman has given away his virginity before marriage, one of the first things they do is they get a tattoo. I don't think that's by accident. Now, please don't misquote me or start some rumor. I'm not saying that this is true of every person with a tattoo, but unfortunately it's true of many today. And I'm not trying to be squishy on this issue, but I would never encourage someone to get a tattoo. Uh, Once you get them, you can't undo them. Um, And some general principles is that we are to dress modestly. That's true for a woman, it's true for a man. Tattoos tend to call attention to yourself, and that's not the goal of a believer, to call attention to yourself. And if you're really questioning whether or not you should do it, we hit on this a little bit last week. One of the, one of the principles on the so-called gray areas is, is, can I do it in a clear conscience? And if you're doubting, oh, should I do this or should I not do it? When in doubt, cut it out. Why? Because Romans fourteen twenty three says, whatever is not from faith is sin. And let me also say, if you don't have a tattoo, you can relate across the board to people. If you do have a tattoo that's very visible, in some realms you will disqualify the opportunity. You'll lose your platform to share the gospel because of, you know, judgments that people make about you, about a tattoo. And I don't want to do anything that's going to shut down that door. Now, a bigger question, is this part of God's moral law or ceremonial law? And um, I think you can build a case that this is part of God's moral law, not part of his ceremonial law, and therefore it has full application for today. And if you listen to earlier Bible lines where I deal with the question in more depth, I've dealt with that in the past. But in either case, you can't undo it once you have it. So I would encourage you very consciously. Look, we got hundreds of people at CBC with tattoos. So again, this is not a test of fellowship. But I think wisdom, because I'm not sure it really glorifies God in our day, and whatever we do, we're to do for the glory of God. It tends to call attention to yourself, and many times Christians do it with a conscience that is troubling them. And I don't think it is by accident that typically when you see some young gal who's brandished a tattoo on her body... She has given away her moral purity to a man that was not her husband, and vice versa. Uh, I don't think that's by accident. Uh, The conscience becomes seared and dull, and our sensitivity to the things of God are lost. If you got a tattoo, just use it as a reminder of the incredible grace of God that can save and reach anyone with the good news. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today, Wednesday night basic discipleship. You can live stream us at Community Bible Church, on Facebook, uh, Apple, Roku, all kinds of uh, places. Thanks for being with us. God bless you.